came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks everyone for tuning in again to Disasters Deconstructed. With all that's been going on in 2020, I think anyone would be forgiven for feeling a little bit hopeless. Everywhere we look, there is injustice. A deadly global pandemic has become something of a new normal, I think. And it's hard to maintain hope. But when we look at struggles through history, we see how visionaries always kept fighting, even when objectives looked impossible. Today, we're going to talk about how to keep going, even when all seems lost. Hope. It is such an important part of being human and something we're understanding more about all the time. And so we're really, really, really excited to have Laurie Peak again with us. Thank you, Laurie, for joining us once again. Thank you, Ksenia, and thank you, Jason, for having me back. I am so honored and I loved our last conversation. I'm really looking forward to this one. Thank you. Us too. We, we were so glad that you were able to launch our second season with us back in um, January. Seems like forever ago, like so much has happened in 2020. <laughs> yeah, it's only January, right? Oh, God. <laughs> I know. It, it definitely feels like maybe eight years ago. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So, so Laurie, we um, so loved participating in the Natural Hazards Workshop last month. Congratulations on such an amazing virtual event. I know it was uh, a big shift for you guys, but you really pulled it off. Oh, thank you, Jason. And thank you to you and Ksenia for participating so wholeheartedly. And um, just really thank you for being there. And I, I definitely wanted to, at the outset, really acknowledge the, as we always say, small but mighty team at the Natural Hazard Center because mm. you are right, Jason. We pivoted really, really quickly as soon as it became clear that there was just no way that we were going to be able to safely gather in person in July as we've done for 44 years prior. Mm -hmm. um, we made that decision and the team at the Natural Hazard Center to a person, just everybody um, really threw their whole hearts and their whole minds into it. And the core team of Jennifer Tobin, Katie Murphy, Jeffrey Gunderson, and Jolie Breeden, it really was what they were uh, eating, breathing, sleeping yeah. for sort of three months mm -hmm. solid. So thank you so much for honoring us with your presence and to the other people who were able to join us. It, it meant the whole world. Yeah, it was it was incredible. And it was such a, a great atmosphere. And um, Ksenia and I in the group, we, we kind of had debrief meetings at the end of some of the days and just yeah, kind of yeah. hung, hung out on Zoom. It was really fun, um, including so some, some of your team from the, from the center. Um, so, and then another thing that was, that stood out about this year's workshop was the theme. And so the theme mm -hmm. was active hope. And I want to start our conversation today there. So how did you guys come to this theme and why do you think it was important? 
for gathering of hazards and disasters researchers and practitioners to focus on this theme? Yes. So um, I will say I'll give you a little bit of context on the theme statements themselves. Um, so I became the director of the Natural Hazard Center in 2017. And one of the things that I just knew about the workshop is that the workshop is a, such an important um event for our community and i was as i was thinking about what is something that we might be able to do each year that honors the the four decade long legacy of the workshop but also helps us to move forward and so in 2017 i started writing a theme statement each year that was meant to sort of um sort of help us to bring come together each year around a big idea, but then also to leave that open space for those updates of what happens every single, you know, as the year passes so that everybody can come together and share. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of how the, the theme statements came to be generally. And then this year for the 2020 theme, as you mentioned, the theme was Active Hope in an age of environmental extremes. And um, I, the theme actually followed from a really powerful book that I had read by the same name. And I know that many of your listeners have read it now too, mm -hmm. or ha had already read it. And so the, the book Active Hope um, is by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. And I actually read this book um, maybe a year or two ago and I'll give you the backstory on why I read the book, which is I'm on this environmental sociology listserv. And a while back, somebody had posed a question about uh, they were teaching a course on climate change. And they said that, you know, they teach basically 15 weeks of gloom and doom. <laughs> and then the last week of the semester is sort of like, oh, but here's what we can do about it. Right. And of <laughs> course, the students just leave completely depressed, completely demoralized. And even by the time they get to that one last section or one last week or one last class, in some ways, the professor was saying she felt like it was just too late. Yeah. And so she asked uh, the fellow environmental sociologists, what do you use in your classes to try to get students thinking sooner about what they might do um, and how they might respond to the incredible threats that we are facing. And my friend and colleague, Stephanie Malin, who's a professor of sociology at Colorado State University, she had written in to this listserv and she um, talked about Active Hope as like this really important book that she uses in our classes. And so I wrote Stephanie offline and I said, Stephanie, tell me more. I'm really intrigued. And she said to me, this book has become like my Bible. And she said, I have read it so many times and it has brought me through just so many moments of feeling hopeless and like there's nothing we can do in the face of social and economic injustice, racial injustice, environmental injustice, all of the threats we face. And so um, it was, you know, back to that time when Stephanie recommended that book. And then I dove into it. And I, I have to tell you, Jason and Cassidia, I have read this book like four times now. Okay. And each time I just get something new out of it. So it was really that book um, that inspired the theme. And then I'll say one last thing about it and then turn it back to you, which is 
I sort of felt the same way as what that instructor said on the list about with the hazards and disaster field um, in somewhat we part of our job is to diagnose problems, right? Like yeah. that is what we do. And, and it is our responsibility to uh, track risk over time. And it is our part of our responsibility as researchers and practitioners to understand the impacts of disaster. And so we rightfully so spend a lot of our time thinking about what losses occur and why they occur and so forth. And I was worried that as disaster losses are escalating so quickly um, and as risk is escalating, that I'm just honestly, I've been so concerned about our field and I've been concerned about the people who do the work in our field um, to make sure that even during this time of extremes, that there's still that possibility for hope, a possibility for a different future and I just I already see this in the hazards field right because the hazards researchers and practitioners are visionary they're constantly thinking about how to reduce risk and so I thought that the active hope that it might give us a framework to step into as we're doing the work. Yeah, it's really great to hear some of the backstory there. And I can totally relate to what you're saying about like going through a whole course and getting to the end and saying, oh, but there's still, there's still hope, right? There's still hope <laughs> after you've just kind of poured on all, all these, all this, um, content and different data, which kind of speaks to how bad everything is. And I, I remember like back probably when I started doing more science communication stuff. Like 2015, I remember doing some talks. I did a talk at a human geography department in Australia. And one of the senior professors afterwards wrote me a long email about, um, no, and it was, it was really good. It wasn't bad. It was a really, really great email just about my talk because I did exactly what you're saying, Laurie. I kind of, I, I articulated all the kind of structural problems in society and, and kind of at the end was like, but it's, it's okay. We can still kind of find it, you know? <laughs> and, she, and she was just like, you know, you can't, you probably, sh- you could lead with a different, in a different way, or you could kind of integrate hope through the, through the narrative. Right. Um, because by the time you get to the end, everybody is like totally deflated. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, so, so Laurie, tell us, um, briefly, maybe what were some of the key highlights from the workshop this year? Um, how did this, theme kind of play out Uh, yeah yes thank you for asking that so i i think number one the highlight the number one highlight is always the people because without the people there is no workshop and this year there was definitely honestly we had a lot of anxiety around that because there is no welcoming with a hug and welcome to colorado and all that and we just we didn't know if people were going to show up into the online forum because they had the option to be able to watch later um, the videos, we didn't know if people would interact with each other. But from that first session on Sunday, as soon as the people that started showing up, it was like, oh, <laughs> these are our people and they're here and there are new people. 
people who were welcoming and the returning people are welcoming the mm. movies just like always. And so number one, I mean, the highlight is always the people. And um, secondly, related to that, I think a second really big highlight was this year was actually our largest workshop ever, which I think was mm -hmm. a real silver lining to the online format that it did allow more people to join. And mm -hmm. so with more people, that means more diversity of perspective, yeah. more diversity of voice that has allowed people, even though the time zone issue is always an issue, but uh, people from around the world were able to sign up when in the past, just the cost of travel and the time of travel was prohibitive. Yeah. And so that diversity of perspectives was just really big. Um, I think a third highlight was definitely the creativity that we saw. And here I'm going to call you, Jason and Ksenia, out because um, one of the things in terms of the evaluations, the comments that we got and we saw it too, was that because of the online format, um, people did a lot of things, including both of you with your amazing session on science communication to really engage the audience in new and different ways. And so I think that was really a third highlight was both just the creativity, the ways that the panelists like you showed up and were um, interacting with the audience. And I think also related to that was also the intimacy that several people commented to us that in some ways it did feel more intimate because you were looking into people's homes and you were yeah. people were just a little more relaxed because they were speaking from their desk or their couch and they weren't sort of standing behind a podium in a dark hotel room so i think that <laughs> that was definitely a third highlight and then um the fourth highlight that i would definitely share that is very much connected to the theme was that i just felt like after not seeing everybody for a year and then so much has passed in this year since we haven't seen each other. I mean, obviously, the many more record-shattering disasters and then the global pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. And so there was also just sort of this heaviness that I think is hanging over all of our hearts. But I think that perhaps the big, biggest highlight of all was that the work continues you know, that mm -hmm. to a person, every single person who was on a panel or a participant, they had something to share and they had something to say about what they are doing to both take stock of the grim realities that we face, but also to do something about it. And so I think that that was um, perhaps the most important thing of all was just to, to continue to learn from this ever-growing and robust and diverse and extraordinary community of scholars and practitioners who are trying to respond to the rising threats that we face. Mm. Yeah, so oh, those were my highlights, but Jason and Ksenia, you were participants, and so I feel a little self-conscious, and now I almost, <laughs> I don't know if we have time for you to get your highlights, but I want to interview you and turn it back on you. Yeah, no, we loved it. I mean, it was my first natural hazards workshop and I I wish I were there in person, you know, I was kind of all, all prepared to go. Um, but it, as you said, having online and it's just allowed for so many people to be engaged. I, I absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed um, it. was my first time last year to come in person and then um, this was my second time and it was virtual. And um, 
I, I enjoyed it so much. It's, I mean, having small children as well and trying mm-hmm. to minimize my travel, it was pretty ideal to be able to, to log on and engage in these important conversations and then just like still go down and join the family for meal meals and stuff right so. mm. yeah the, the funny thing sorry jason just reminded me about this so as i was watching the workshop i've managed to knit a whole jumper <laughs> which was great <laughs> oh, that, awesome. that is amazing and definitely the like the little Zoom hangouts we had with some of the people that were attending were just lovely as well. Um, and we just kind of had deep debrief sessions. So yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I'll um, turn this back down to grim realities now, this, this yeah. conversation. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. So, well, 2020 hasn't been great, really. And we, I think we've all, we don't need to discuss that it has really been quite traumatic for most of the people around the world for a variety of reasons. And I think hope is probably something that might seem out of reach for many of us. But what do you think we can do to actually actively remain hopeful and why should we remain hopeful why can't we just kind of all sit and sulk you know and be optimistic yeah and Ksenia, just thank you so much for raising this because i actually think this these are such important questions for us to engage with because i completely understand that it can be like, well, wait a minute, you're you're telling me to be hopeful. Three members of my family just passed away, or mm-hmm. I just lost my job, or my community is 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 being just absolutely ravaged right now by the virus and the economic fallout, and the list goes on. And so I know that um, I know that it's it's such a complicated concept, and it can evoke really strong feelings to to even talk about hope during such grim times. And so I really, really do appreciate you raising these questions. And so I'm going to start with the sort of this question about that, that hope can feel out of reach and um, how, how can we even remain hopeful given everything that is unfolding in our world and the deep historical injustices that we face and the the uncertain futures and so forth. And so I think one of the places I wanted to start with that was with this idea that in the book, Active Hope, Macy and Johnstone, they really, at the beginning, they start with a very clear definition of what they mean by active hope and why they even use the word active as the modifier before hope. And Mm -hmm. so, um, they start out by really distinguishing and saying that on the one hand, oftentimes hope is used as a feeling and there's nothing good or bad about that. Feelings, emotions obviously make us human. And, but, but they say the problem, if we approach hope as a feeling that it is an emotion is that those days when we do not feel hopeful, in fact, when we feel hopeless, that then we very well may become paralyzed in the face of all of the uncertainty and the grim realities that we face. But then they sort of turn that and they say, there's another way to think about hope, which is sort of really thinking about hope as a practice 
hope not something as not as something that we have, but hope as something that we do. And when we begin to treat hope like a practice, yeah. and they say think of it like tai chi or gardening, that it's something that if you do it every day, you get better at it, and you can move forward with it. That when we start treating hope like a practice, that's when we can actually cultivate it, and that means we can cultivate. A, a vision for the world, and so that's um, that's why I think this concept is so important. And I think this sort of three-step model that they put forth of hope actually—it's not about just being optimistic or naive. That in fact, the first step in active hope is to take stock of the reality that you face. Because if you don't have a clear view of reality, then how are you ever going to set that vision for what you want to move forward, forward with? And so I, I also love their three-step process of you start by taking stock of reality and getting that clear view of reality. So then you can take that second step of setting a clear vision for the future. And then the third step is figuring out what are the steps that I can take as an individual or that we can take as a collective to help move forward with that vision? And so I just, I, I, I think that the, when we treat hope as a practice, that is the, one of the main things that we can do to help to move forward. You know, this reminds me a lot about um, Freire's kind of view on love, I guess. And, you know, when Freire kind of sees love as, as, as a process as well as kind of an, as, as an action, right? And um, as an action that we do every day. And it's, it's very interesting to see how these two, I guess, basically very human characteristics can be turned into something practicable and you know i i dare say revolutionary maybe mm, i i love that connection to love and hope and to his work and i i think you're absolutely right and i think to the second part of the the question that you pose ksenia about why should we do this? Why why should we engage in love or hope or whatever that sort of core practice that I think is, um, you both said at the outset that, that most visionary leaders have sort of put forth in their worlds, so why should we do this? And I guess sometimes I think, what other choice do we have? Those, those realities are out there. And um, they also do sort of confront this at the beginning of the book. So they argue there are kind of three stories of our time. And one is what they call the, the business as usual story. And so that's the you know, we've always been this way. We've always consumed at this level. Let's just keep going with where we're at. And so there's kind of that business as usual model. And then there's a second model that is just, that is the story that is just essentially everything is falling apart. And that you've taken stock of the reality and the reality is so grim that it's, it can just become absolutely paralyzing. And so that that's what they call the great unraveling. And so then there's this sort of, third story of our time, though, which is this potential for the story of active hope, where we 
we realize that the business as usual path, it's not going to work, that it's just not going to work to stay on that same path. But also if we move into the space of just everything is falling apart, then there's a likelihood that we are going to become paralyzed and we're not going to be able to act in the face of all of the threats that we do face. And so that's where they make this argument that there is a possibility for us to write a new story and to know that we may not ever see how this story is going to end, but remembering that every single action that we take can make a difference. And while we, again, may not know for sure how that action is going to matter into the future, we can go forth with a sense of adventure and possibility that um, we're at least trying to make a difference and we're doing what we can with what we have. I love that. It's like, for me, part of the the difficulty is um, working maybe against your own ego that says you need to be the center of this story. You, you need to make sure that you succeed personally and see the outcome that you want during your life, right? Rather than um, kind of separating yourself from that and seeing yourself as part of something um, bigger and investing in the collective good, even if the objective doesn't occur until you're long gone, right? Mm, absolutely. So, uh, Laurie, we know that there is always an opportunity for change that arises through disaster and that people are more likely to behave altruistically when so-called normal social and economic conditions are disrupted, right? So, and actually some people might argue that normal is oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I just, in the, in the last few months, you know, looking at everything going on in this country and around the world, are there things that you've seen during the pandemic that bring this out and show how people have good intentions deep down towards each other? Um, and why do you think it is that we can sometimes see this more clearly in crisis? Yes. And so, Jason, I love the framing for that question, because in that question, I think you just captured one of the most long-standing findings of disaster research, right, yeah. is that there is this altruism that occurs in the emergency phase of disaster. And in fact, as we know, the earliest disaster researchers, they were so taken by the generosity and mm-hmm. the care for one another that they saw that they actually gave this a name. They called it the emergence of the altruistic community or they called it therapeutic social systems where people come together in times of emergency and so i just i love and thank you for tapping into the deep well of Mm. disaster research um and so i also i wanted to quote to another book that i just love on uh rebecca solnit has written a a wonderful book called hope in the dark and she Mm. also wrote a book called paradise uh, paradise built in hell where she draws on so much social science research. And one of the things that she writes in that latter book, she says, quote, an emergency is a separation from the familiar, a sudden emergence into a new atmosphere, one that often demands we ourselves rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that's such a beautiful definition of what it actually emergency is sort of the root is to emerge. And um, so I think to your latter question, Jason, about why can we 
sometimes see this more clearly in crisis. I think it, we know this, right? That it's during those moments of great need. And when that emergency is most apparent, when it, our helping behaviors also become clear, our, um, they, our, our nature to help one another becomes so apparent. And so I just, I, I think that it's so important that we continue to put this finding forth into the world and that during these times of great division and great social strife, that we remind one another that there is another way. And during times of disaster, we oftentimes show ourselves most clearly what we can do and who we are when we come together during these moments of crisis. And so I, those crises just, they reveal so much and um, so I, I just think this is such an important question. And it's it doesn't mean that we don't also talk about the other things that crises reveal, which are also oftentimes deep inequalities and mm. deep injustices and disparities mm. in who lives and who dies and who's injured and who's not and who's able to prepare and who recovers and who doesn't and so forth. And so those stories are just as important to tell. But I think if we, if we're going to do our job to capture the complexity of the human experience and the possibility of, of what we can be, I think we need to tell all of those stories. Mm -hmm. And so um, just again, thank you for asking the question. And then your, your other more specific question was about, are there things that, I've seen during the pandemic that, that demonstrate this kind of altruistic behavior and good intentions. And I have to say there, I, I just think there are countless stories of this. And in fact, one of the um, COVID-19 working groups that we funded through Converge was, is specifically focused on mutual aid mm -hmm. and these kinds of helping behaviors. And so they are working very hard to document those behaviors across different scales and across different social groups. And so that we can have a fuller portrait of that. And so I just, I think there are countless examples and I hope that as school children and college students go back to classes that I would love to see this be one of the assignments that um, gets put forth to the, our, our generation of learners right now is that, we, we are in the middle of such a historic moment that what a thing to capture right now, the creativity and the ingenuity and the love that we are seeing between people. Um, and I'll mm. end with a couple of concrete examples on this question set. So I've actually been clipping out. So you both know I study children in disasters. Mm -hmm. And every so often in our, um, I read the Boulder newspaper every day. And every so often there's been a story in there about something a child has done. And so um, one of the a 13-year-old girl here in Boulder, she wrote a book with her grandmother that was about trying to explain how even though we're at loan, that we're still um, able to connect with one another and learn from one another. And they did this illustrated book. There's a teenage boy who's going through his Eagle Scout badges, or badge here in um, Colorado. So he's been gathering up food and distributing it. Uh, so there was a boy who, <laughs> he just broke a Guinness Book of World Records for solving a 
Rubik's cube on his pogo skin <laughs> stick, and, and his whole he was like did it in seconds. I was like, who is this kid, and how can I come to know him? And you know, and, and his whole community came together, social distancing, to film him doing this thing on the pogo stick because they had to like meet all the Guinness Book of World Records rules, but they had to um, do it in a creative way. So I've been clipping those stories out because. I want to remember this time of the things that children and youth are doing and the things that our adults are doing on behalf of and alongside children and youth to try to help get through these times in creative ways. And of course, I clip out all the things that teachers and parents are doing to try to continue with the education of children. So that's kind of where my lens has been in terms of more systematically tracking these mm-hmm. kinds of things in my local community. But I, I just love this question so much. And I hope all of your listeners might um, use this as an opportunity for inspiration to sort of look around and say, where are you seeing care uh, come to life in your community? And then ask the question of, how can we keep that alive even when this crisis passes? Because this crisis, it, w- it will pass and it will morph and it will change into something different. But the sort of question that I'm grappling with right now is how do we hold on to the best of what is happening with right, w- w- the best of what is happening right now, even when we know that the worst may still be yet to come? And so that means it's perhaps even more important that we document and hold on to the best. I think one of the outpourings of care and hope that I like to highlight is the protests that are sweeping the United States and like having been to different events since um, June the the amount of love and solidarity and hope that is is visible and like you can feel it is incredible and it it's it's disappointing when um, protest is sometimes framed as something that is you know violent and hopeless and pointless and um i i had a conversation with a with a family member over the weekend where you know it was just very difficult to get anywhere because that framing of of the protest has been absorbed by the person that i've i was discussing with but for me Mm -hmm. that's such an amazing manifestation currently of hope in this country Jason, I just to quickly respond to that. I just wanted to say I love that. And I love what you did with that example. So it was sort of moving this to how are we seeing care expressed at the collective level. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the protests are one of the most beautiful things I've I've ever seen in my lifetime as far as people coming together on behalf of other people mm. and on behalf of our entire future and our possibilities together. And so what I love about that example that you gave is that sort of thinking about what, do, what does care 
look like at the collective level? What can care look like at the individual sort of interpersonal level? And then even what does care look like when we can't see it? What are those sort of hidden things that people may be doing in the context of the home that oftentimes don't get seen or they don't get counted, but they matter so very much in terms of binding our communities together. And so I just, I absolutely love that. And thank you for bringing that example into the conversation. And again, it goes back to that. Everything that we do, we may not know how this ends, but it sure can matter and it mm-hmm. does matter and, and never let them convince you otherwise because it does matter. I think it's just important, so important that you're saying how things matter and we shouldn't forget about it because I feel that this is maybe exactly the problem, you know, with all the social problems and with pandemic and the protests and everything else. Um, maybe we've lost that a little bit, right? Despite all the little efforts that people are kind of showing and efforts of love and efforts of hope. Um, sometimes this is just all too overwhelming. And I was reading Eduardo Galeano just a couple of days ago, and he was writing about Cuba and he was saying how much of what the government has been doing in recent years, and that was early 2000s, um, was really a scene against hope. And I feel that what is happening now and what we see particularly on media with those actions from the most powerful is the scene against hope, right? And many individuals feel that they there is nothing they can do. They cannot make a difference. And perhaps this kind of feeling is can be perceived as a lack of control and maybe can even be demoralizing, right? So we kind of, we almost give up. So how how do we not give up? Um, is this about inner work, you know, so what it is should we do as individuals um, to to still be impactful, right, and to be able to appreciate that? Mm, and that, that is such a good example, Ksenia. And I, I really, really like this question because I, I have to tell you, like both of you, I, 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 I was trained to think about structures and systems. You know, as a sociologist, we look out at the world and we see institutions. And, and, you know, oftentimes that's how we're trained to think is we're looking for large scale patterns and we're looking at groups rather than individuals and so forth and so I will tell you one of the things that I actually loved about reading this book was it it made me realize how much I'm sort of I'm I'm oftentimes thinking at that different scale about how can we reorganize entire systems to advance yeah. our vision for justice and equity. But one of the points that the, the book really makes is that again it is about that your your thoughts your words, your actions, all of those things matter and your individual health and well-being matters so that you can actually show up and be your best self for whatever it is that you are trying to advance in the world. And so I have to say one of the things that I actually loved about the book, because sometimes I I have to admit, I I fall victim to that idea of like, well, what can one individual do? Because we really do need deep systemic change if we are going to move into this new just and equitable future. But the thing that the book 
reminds us over and over and over again is that individual actions can and do make a difference. And they give a lot of examples and actual practices to help cultivate that kind of individual well-being. And so I absolutely love that. And I think there are lots of things that we can and should be doing as individuals. So I actually, I really found that very empowering and inspiring to just realize like you writing letters or you doing these sorts of things, it can make a difference. And so do it, do what you can with what you have. But then it also, it doesn't remain at that individual level because it also recognizes that the challenges we face, the ecological, the economic, the social challenges, they are so grand that it likely is going to take collective action and it's going to take us working together. Um, and so it, it really sort of moves seamlessly across those scales. And I sometimes find it unsatisfying to be at sort of either end, if it's all kind of very individualistic or if it's at the other end of we can only <laughs> sort of make change if we completely change our systems because at the end of the day, People do have power and we we cannot ever believe that we don't have power because we do have an enormous amount of power. And even if that power is just to initially shape our initial sphere of influence and those in our orbit, that is still power. And with that power comes real possibility. And so um, I think that, that active hope can start with that kind of inner work and that kind of recognition of our own power and our own possibility and then thinking carefully about who do we who do we connect to in our world and how can we work together with those people to create change and moving sort of ever moving outward into that sort of orbit and in our spheres of influence and i think that's where the the adventure and also the possibility lies we have been talking to Lori Peak about active hope and um, I wanted to mention as well, if anybody's interested in positive examples of solidarity during the pandemic, we have a special episode back in our archive that you can search up. Oh, Jason and Ksenia, thank you so much. You just, it's like I come in with a half full glass of water and I drink the water when we're talking, but somehow the, the glass is full by the time I've spoken to you. Both. So just thank you for, I feel like sort of listening to you has become an an important practice for me in terms of just what I've learned from both of you and also have learned from the guests that you bring onto the show. So thank you for honoring me by being one of your guests and just thank you for the diverse range of voices from all over the world that you two always bring together. It's it's really extraordinary. Oh, thanks, Lori. Thank you so much, Lori. Yeah, no, it's it's really a privilege and we, we just enjoy this so much and like we've said before in the podcast, the practice itself is so enriching to our lives and our work. You know? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget... 
Disasters are not natural. See you next time. I want to remind all of the wonderful listeners out there that you have been listening to Kasnia and Jason on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. And thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for listening.